Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel 19. Um, still some people hanging out out there. Let's just settle down. And <laughs> All right. All right. You guys really have to help me today because my voice is not 100%. 1 <laughs> um, Samuel 19. We're coming back to our exposition in the uh, book of 1 Samuel. We have been studying verse by verse this uh, amazing story of how the Lord chose a king to be, uh, to be over Israel, a king that is according to his own heart. Now we're introduced to David. We have seen the flaws of Saul, but now we are seeing how, how does God will work to make David the man that he needs him to be the king of Israel. So the topic of our, uh, the title of our sermon today is God's deliverance of his servant. In chapter 18, you studied here with Dylan, we've learned that Saul, filled with envy, tried to kill David in three separate occasions. First, he tried to pin David um, in the wall while he played the lyre, or then he tried to plot with his daughter Mirab to ensnare him and then third, to send him off the war with the Philistines so that he might be killed. This will continue on this chapter 19, this persecution of David. But I think about in all the ways that the Lord has delivered us. In this trip to Brazil, I got to share with Lindsay some of the places that I used to drive by, you know, where I used to go to work. And it was neat to be able to share that kind of story with her. And one of the events was uh, when I, once I was driving back home, and it was a highway, and it was raining, pouring rainy, like cats and dogs, you <laughs> just imagine. And a donkey just crossed my path. I mean, we don't have deers. <laughs> the donkey just came in front of me, and I just prayed, Lord, deliver me, because I, I could not envision. And it was a highway. Cars were coming very fast on the highway. Hydroplaning is very common. And I hydroplane just a little bit, and thankfully there was no cars behind. And I was just thanking the Lord for that deliverance. And I am sure that if I would ask you here today, you would have a story to tell about the Lord's deliverance in your life. One of them, actually, I think it's very interesting. Um, it was etched in my mind when I heard of this. Brother Andrew, I don't know if you, many of you um, heard of his stories. He's a, a smuggler of, of Bibles to communist countries. And in 1957, he made his first smuggling trip across the border of the communist country, entering Yugoslavia with tracts, Bibles, and portions of Bibles hidden in his blue Volkswagen. As he watched the guards search the car in front of him, he prayed that he would later call the prayer of God's smuggler. Here's what he prayed. Lord, in my luggage, I have the scripture that I want to take to your children across the border. When you are on earth, when you were on earth, you made blind eyes to see. Now I pray, make seen eyes blind. <laughs> Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. And wonderfully so, the Lord answered that prayer. 
and Brother Andrew was able to get to Yugoslavia and bring those Bibles. It is an amazing how the Lord sometimes, through normal circumstances, by his providence, he protects us from harm. And sometimes he even intervenes. This was supernatural. How come men, the trained soldiers, were not able to see those books? And so in our passage today, we will see that God will protect David in many ways, and that will be an encouragement to us so that we might be confident and not afraid when we're facing challenging circumstances. Let's open the word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Thus says the word of the Lord. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you, put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced in it. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, and he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. When there was a war again, David went out and fought the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David onto the wall with a spear, and he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. We're going to read the rest of the chapter later, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you with reverence before your holy words. We know that everything that is written in here, it was for our instruction. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament is your holy word given to us for our encouragement and for our correction. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge our hearts and help us to focus um, on what you are telling us and And how can we change and how can we glorify you with our lives, just as David did through the circumstances? Lord, we love you and we want to learn from you. Help us in our weaknesses. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
So our outline there, if you didn't get um, an outline, we have tables there in the back where you can follow the sermon and it has the, par the parallel text that you can follow along. And then there's some questions at the end there for you to uh, reflect at home and to how to apply this sermon to your own life. So I really want to encourage you to pick up one of those if you haven't yet. So our first point is God's deliverance through faithful friendship. For some time now, we have been seeing chapter 18, probably two years since Saul has been secretly plotting to kill David, and now frustrated by his lack of success, he reveals to his closest advisors that they should join him in this endeavor. And we read here in verse 1, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. Chapter 18, it was kind of veiled. He was doing those things secretly, telling behind his back, and now he's out in the open. I want to kill David. Then we read in verse 2, but Jonathan. So Jonathan, whose relationship with Saul is mentioned twice to underscore how awkward the situation is for him, does not approve of his father's scheme. Jonathan delighted much in David, he loved David, actually, in chapter 18, it says. And as Dylan expressed before, this relationship between Jonathan and David, a true friendship and of loyalty of soldiers together has been twisted by the world in a, into a homosexual relationship. But that has nothing to do with this kind of relationship that Jonathan had. This is loyalty of a faithful brother encouraging the other. Someone, really, that Jonathan um, was the next king in line, forfeited his own rights because he acknowledged David would be the next king. It says that he delighted in him. It, it, it conveys this deep affection that Jonathan has for David. And so prob Saul probably knows the covenant between D Jonathan and David that we saw in last chapter and is trying in his best interest as he sees them to lead them apart from David. But Jonathan immediately warns David of the danger that he's in. He tells him, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. He employs seek, a term that is going to be frequently used here to talk about Saul's attempt on David's life. He comes in and conceal himself in a secret place, a site that just the two of them knew. So he asked David to stay there. In verse 3 he says, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. So meanwhile, Jonathan will bring Saul out to an open area near David's hideout, presumably just by asking for a private conversation with his father. While alone there with Saul, Jonathan will broach the subject of the king's attitude toward David, and it will then update David about his concerning, uh, concerning his intentions. In verse 4, Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David. Jonathan was a man of integrity. Though he was with his family, with his kin, he would not let the word of God dictate, um, would let the word of God dictate what is right and wrong, not his, par his father's ravings. The next morning, events occur just as Jonathan has planned, and he carefully 
uses formal language in addressing Saul as the king, not as father, describing David as his servant, and presents David in a very positive light to his father, denying that he has committed any offense and how much he has contributed to the success of his reign. Saul's proposal was a sin. He was killing an innocent person, a person who had no fault. And furthermore, in verse 5, we read here that the Lord has won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced. You will remember the study that we did in chapter 17 when David killed Goliath, where they were all in despair, and they couldn't help themselves, and David, a little shepherd boy, defeated that giant. And with that brought great victory to the people of Israel because they were able now to move forward in the battle and to win that battle. Jonathan reminds Saul of the danger to which David exposed himself in slaying Goliath. Also, the evident divine favor that David enjoys as the one through whom Israel has been delivered. These facts are known to Saul who has previously applauded David. So Jonathan challenges his father, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a cause? Sin against, repeats the expression of the previous verse, he is innocent blood, refers to the unwarranted death of an individual who has not acted improperly. Capital death was something that was permissible in the law and the Torah. If someone has killed, taken the life of another person with the intent of killing them, uh, there was an end for punishing that person with capital death. But David hasn't killed anyone with intent to kill them, if not in a war setting. He hasn't sinned against Saul or his family. Jonathan's view of the battle was ultimately that the Lord's victory is consistent with David's own interpretation. Actually, how about we turn our Bibles back to chapter 17? He didn't say that what the women were singing, right? They were saying, David kill his thousands, uh, Saul kills his thousands, and, but David killed his tens of thousands. No. David, in chapter 17 and 47, he says that his victory doesn't come from his own strength. He says, and all this assembly may know, uh, I'm reading 1747, and all of this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands, as he's speaking to Goliath. He acknowledges that in, in himself, David couldn't accomplish nothing. And what Jonathan is doing here is reminding father, king, See what the, the victory that this man brought to us through the Lord. It wasn't him. It was the Lord that did this. He's an instrument in God's hand. And you want to put him to death? Jonathan cast David in the role of Lord's instrument of victory, which Saul readily accepts in his occasion. Now, why now does Saul want to kill one who has served the king and the Lord so effectively? Now, for our surprise, in chapter in verse 6, we read that Saul turns back on it. And he says, as the Lord lives, shall, he shall not be put to death. Now, we have known before that Saul is not someone very 
good in, in his word, is he? In chapter 14, when he said that he was going to obey Samuel, did he obey? No, he didn't. We know of his being deliberately duplicitous. His fluctuating moods makes anything he says when it's guaranteed by an oath an insecure basis for the future. The narrator depicts Saul as one as foolishly seeks to keep a misguided oath and one who breaks a proper one. An oath should be an indicative of one's highest priorities, but Saul's are misplaced. And, and just a comment about oaths. Sometimes we, we, oh, I promise to do this. The Bible says that our yes should be yes and our no, no. We don't need to double and, and give an assurance because our word should stand on its own. That was not the case with Saul. After Saul leaves in, in verse 7, Jonathan informs David of what has been said in bringing him under his protraction, protection as the crown prince, escorts him to Saul. Jonathan's initiative is emphasized by the triple repetition of his name. If you read here, uh, his name is repeated three times here in this verse. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as formerly. Now, I want to stop here, and it's not the main point of the message, but how refreshing it is to have a loyal friend. How refreshing it is. Proverbs, open your Bible to Proverbs 18.24. Proverbs 18.24. To have a friend that is faithful, that is close to you, that knows you well, that knows your weaknesses, your strengths, someone that will walk alongside you, it might be your spouse. It might be a friend that you have. It might be your parents. Those that truly know you and will be an encouragement to you. Friends that you can only count in your hands. Verse 24 says, A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Sometimes we cultivate so many shallow relationships. We talk about sports, we talk about our preferences, but we never talk about our spiritual growth. How am I doing my life before the Lord? So it's good to have those friends. They're closer. That knows exactly what is going on in your heart. Proverbs 17, 17 kind of says something similar. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born in adversity. We all have those people that we know we can trust in the moment of trouble, that we know can be praying for us. I, I have my prayer warriors here that I know that pray for me, and it's an encouragement. So just as a side note here, the Lord will use people in your life to protect you from danger, from harm, and even from yourself. Verse 8 Moving on here, uh, God's deliverance through a swift escape. God's deliverance through a swift escape. Now that David is back to the palace, he's working as he used to work as a musician and also as a soldier to Saul. When there was a war again, David went out and fought the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter. 
he struck them down so that they fled before him. David's success rekindled Saul's jealousy and his desperation with his rival. We see here in verse 9, he says, Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul and he, as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Now, before the spirit came, I want you to draw your attention that Saul's jealousy was already creeping in there. And it gave an end to that spirit to come and torment him. This harmful spirit that came upon him. David is playing the liar, seeking to soothe the king's troubled state of mind. And we have talked about this, how music has this powerful way of just calming people down and just distressing them. And I mean, I think about David's psalms, all the things that he wrote in those hymns that spoke truth about who God is. I'm pretty sure that really drove that spirit away. On this occasion, David provided this customary music for Saul. And Saul, with a spear in his hand, always seemed to be at his hand. David's success preys on his mind, and either he throws his spear at David or lunges it at him with it, but David is sufficiently alert and agile to sidestep the spear and lodges it in the wall. Um, I don't have the pointer, but um, you hear I have a, a picture of a warrior um, from Aslan Tash in Syria. They found this relief there in the 8th century, uh, kind of about the time that David was there in the 9th um, century. So a warrior holding a spear, you can imagine that. In the next picture was a painting by a German painter, Julius Snor, showing that, describing that scene. David's music had the power to calm Psalm's troubled spirit, but there, was, there were times when the king's mania overcame even the small respite. So that shows the description of him nailed on the wall. Now, I want to draw your attention to something that is not so evident in our English translations here. Go to verse 9 um, and compare with verse 8. I want you to note here when he says that he defeated them with a, with a great slaughter and they fled before him. That word, therefore, defeated, that it says that he struck them down. All right? And then you move on to um, verse 10. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of his presence. So the word pin, David, is the exact same word that was translated as he defeated them. So in verse 8, defeated or struck down, the nacha word in, in the Hebrew, the Philistines then fled, right, nus from them, and then they try to pin David, strike down, so David is forced to flee. There's an irony there. David, the victor over the Philistines, is treated like a Philistine, and he has to flee. The man who did the right thing, who is driving God's enemies away, now he has to flee himself because the king is raving mad. This vivid contrast between Saul and David facilitates the narrator giving a pro-David agenda. He's showing to them that David is not trying to usurp the throne. He's serving the king. In verse 5 and 8, it's the same verb 
to describe David striking down the Philistine and the champion armies. They, while David is striking down the enemies of Israel, Saul is trying to strike down the Lord's chosen servant. This escape marks the start of David's life as a fugitive. Um, I think you can go to the next one. Uh, the next one, I'll go back to that for now. Uh, this is a map, really, on the left side, you will see the bigger one. It's all the wanderings that took about 15 years of David fleeing from Saul. So this is the start when he is fleeing from him and he never is coming back to work for Saul again. So this escape marks the start of David's life as a fugitive. Um, I want to make a side comment here. I don't know if you were here this morning. We have been touching on the matter of domestic violence and and the topic of abuse. Uh, We're going to continue that series next week. And I think it is helpful for us to say, open your Bible, Proverbs 27, 12. David saw danger and he fled from it. Many a times we, we hear people giving wrong counsel on, on people suffering abuse. No, you just, you just stay it. You just stand that when there is a real danger in life. Proverbs 28, 12 says, 27, 12 says, A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. He hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Beloved, we need to be wise. If there are occasions that call for safety, we call for safety. Dylan was talking about the legalities of things that we are obliged to report certain scenarios. And the Lord has placed the local authorities for our protection and for our good and for the good of his people. So, it's a good application of what we have been studying in the first hour in situations, those situations. Scriptures encourages us in the way of wisdom. When you know to be in a dangerous situation of life and death, if we have the ability of fleeing, we do so. Yes, we can pray. Yes, we can trust the Lord, but we can also run when need be. In Portuguese, we have this expression, we say, pernas para que te quero. It, it literally translated means, legs, for this I want you. <laughs> and it means, it's time to run. I have these, I have these legs, time to put them to use. So this is what David is doing. He's taking the opportunity to flee. He sees that there's no reasoning with Saul. There's no talking him out of his madness. He had to flee from that danger. Now, God's deliverance, moving on to verse 11, God's deliverance through meticulous deception, meticulous deception. And I think this part is a little bit hard for us to understand, but I want you to take a a bigger look of it, that the Lord is trying to protect David, and he's using all these different circumstances, all these different people to protect him, not necessarily endorsing the way that they're doing things, but he's using them to protect David. So starting on verse 11 that we we didn't read yet, it says here, Then Saul sent his messengers to David's house to watch him. 
in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. The same principle. You see danger, you flee from it. If you don't flee from it, you're going to be dead. Don't be naive thinking that my father is not going to fulfill his own word. He will. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair on his head and covered it with clothes. Let me explain this a, a little bit of this passage here. The narrator identifies her as David's wife rather than Saul's daughter. It's interesting, right? It's a reminder that where, where is her loyalty? It's with her husband. The focus remained on Michael, who personally helps David to escape. Let David down a window implies that the house is more than one story. If you can go back to the previous picture, um, this is another painting, and um, you know that the palace of the king normally was built around the wall of the city, in the city wall, so they, they were leveled. And um, Mikhail probably is trying to get him out through a window in the rear of the palace. So more probably the house is built in a city wall, like Rahab and Joshua's time, right? If you remember from Joshua, Rahab trying to hide the spies, and she had this house on the top of the, of the wall. Um, so to, to give David extra time to get clear, Michael makes it appear that he is ill in bed by using an image to resemble his body and more probably to set at the bed to reflect a heathen practice thought to aid recovery from the illness. This was a, a, a pagan practice that they had to have these idols in the home to kind of take away the disease of the person. Now, that begs the question, was Michael, and we're going to see later in David's story, she is not that great of a wife. She wasn't very faithful to the Lord. Where did that idol came from in the first place? No hint is given as to where the teraphim, this idol, came from, but her ruse is sufficiently realistic if not examined too closely. So verse 13 says, Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put in the quilt of goat's hair as its head and it covered with clothes. When Saul sent his messengers to take David, she said, I can only imagine the scene. You're meticulously preparing that idol and putting hair on there and thinking, okay, this is maybe the right tone of his hair. This is going to be good enough to deceive him. And David is just already far away from his house when Saul arrives there. Then Saul messengers send to see David saying, bring him up to me on his bed so I may put him to death. So it, it wasn't enough to, that he was feeling ill. He wanted to bring the whole bedroom, the whole bed with him. Immediately, Michael's subterfuges exposed, even so her actions have probably gained David several hours to make a good escape. In verse 17, we read, So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Apparently, never 
goes to David's house, but instead summons Michael and demands to know why she has deceived him. He makes no pretense in concerning his attitudes, calling David my enemy. He cannot understand why his daughter does not support him in his vendetta. Michael is trying to turn her father away from committing the same grievous sin that Jonathan already condemned him for. Why, why he should do that? Now, she tells a lie because David didn't say, why shall I kill you? That was a threat maybe that would convince Saul to, um, that maybe David did say that. The narrator gives no indication whether in verse 14 that Michael's deception was wrong-headed in the face of Saul's homicidal fury. Um, David escaped through a window, presumably by the means of a rope, echoes that of Joshua 2, 15, right, when Rahab tried to do that. And the other spies make a similar escape in the aid of the harlot, Rahab. Perhaps we are to understand to David that David's house, like Ahab's, was built on a sitting wall. And a similar story is found in the New Testament of someone coming through a basket out of a window. Remember Paul? Back then, newly converted Saul was forced to flee for his life and escapes by being let down through a window in a basket in Acts chapter 9. In any, in any case, Michael's intervention, and I think if you're reading this, you were feeling just, this is not right. <laughs> is the Lord condoning this, what Michael is doing? Is he supporting that? There are ethical problems here. The demands of the scriptural norm, Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. They are not to be relaxed, but it is clear in the complex reality of life or other norms frequently must be taken into consideration also. This is particularly the case in light of the need to preserve life. Michael knows of Saul's murderous rages and acts as she does here to preserve life, both hers and David's. Now, what, what, what can we say from this? Um, we want to honor the Lord, but we know that you can't control every circumstance. You can control the behavior of an unbeliever, but the Lord might use that behavior to protect you from something bad happening to you. So he's sovereign over all these things, even though he holds people accountable for what they do. Um, Almighty Shaddai, it's, it's another name for God, says that his shadow is there, but in a refreshing variety of ways and instruments. The means and methods of deliverance reflect the imagination of the deliverer. It is in this diversity of God's protection that one sees how ironic this protection is. Have you thought about it? The, the irony borderline line here, um, uh, the humor of it all. Who counters Saul's plot to eliminate David? First, Jonathan, his son. And who masterminds and covers up the whole fleeing from the house? His own daughter. His own family is set against him. It's not a cracker bear of humor, but a low-key humor, the slightly amusing kind that brings a quiet smile once you see it. 
Saul probably expected Jonathan and Michael to stand with him. Instead, his own son and daughter shielded David from Saul. Does not the text put a claim upon us at this point too? Don't we owe a response once we see the diversity and irony in Yahweh's protection? Doesn't God interesting, imaginative ways call for praise? Yes. When the apostle caught in a glimpse of this sort of thing, he threw up his hand adoring in frustration, saying, God is all wise, and he can do whatever he pleases to fulfill his purposes, even using someone else's lie to protect his servant. Romans 11.33, I'm not going to open there, but Paul says, Oh, the depth of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge, how unsearchable and his decisions and how untrackable his ways. The problem with us is that we want to know, right? We like to know. Oh, I have, I'm this distress. I'm in this trial. I want to know how God is going to take me out of it. I want to know how God is going to drive me through it. God knows. We don't need to know. We just need to rest that he is with us and he protects us. He cares for us. And lastly here, the last point in verse 18 to 24, we see that God's deliverance through the unhindered spirit. So far, we have seen God protecting David through regular circumstances. There is nothing abnormal happening here. People are just acting like they do. Jonathan is acting on his faithful character David is just being wise and fleeing from danger, and Michal is just acting the way she is to protect her husband. But now, the Lord is going to intervene directly. Something miraculous is going to happen. Now, David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him, and that he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. So if you look in the map, in the next slide, and that where the number one is, you see that the Gibeah of Saul, that's where the palace of the kingdom was. And this is the first flight that David has. He runs to Ramah. It's the hometown of Samuel, the prophet at that time. <clears throat> and he's seeking refuge in there. This is where the company of prophets is um, in Naoth, a little bit of north of it. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, when Samuel was standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers. <clears throat> God himself intervened. You know, that's enough. That's enough, Saul. I'm going to take charge of this. I am going to intervene. And guess what happened? The guards that came to arrest him started to prophesy in favor of him. And it says they also prophesied. In verse 21 says, When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. Sending a second batch of soldiers, guess what? They also prophesied. And then a third batch in verse 22, then he himself, well, actually, so Saul sent messages again a third time, and they also prophesied, verse 21. 
So all of this, this way the Spirit of God protects David by preventing Saul's messengers from carrying out his orders. That's why they keep repeating, and they also, and they also, and now, verse 22, and he himself, Saul himself, went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku, and he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? Remember that Samuel haven't seen Saul since he disobeyed the Lord in the episode with Agag, King Agag. He disobeyed God and said, I will never see you again. The kingdom is torn away from you. The Lord has already set a new king for himself according to his own heart. So he's still looking for Samuel, but he doesn't find him. And then it says on verse um, 22, he himself, Teramah, and came as far as the large well in Seku, and he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are in Naoth of Ramah. He proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah, and a spirit of God came upon him, what? Also. So, ally, until, um, so that he went along prophesying continually, until he came to Naoth in Ramah. So we read here that um, Saul, the Spirit of, of God came upon him, not just the visitation of the evil spirit, now this is the Spirit of God, it's not preventing from completing his journey, he still goes to the city, but he prophesies as he goes. And in verse 24 we read, he also stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all day, all that night. And therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? I probably heard the same before, right? I can only imagine him thinking, send all these guys, I got to do it my own. Gets there, also taken over by the Spirit of God. So now these implies that the messengers had done so earlier, but probably only Saul remains in a state of the rest of that day and night. The soldiers came, they prophesied, but they left. They didn't continue. But here, Saul stayed all day and night. And I think it was the Lord's humbling him, showing, you know, he wasn't taking off his clothes completely. Probably just his outer garment of a king to say, <clears throat> you're in no condition to be king. You're in no condition to be um, reigning. So this account is a reminder, um, is a reminder of what can happen to those like Saul who God rejects as a result of blatant disobedience. This leaves Saul so obsessed in destroying David that he's ready to kill anyone he perceives to be David's ally. In the next chapter, we'll talk about David, even people that are going to be killed as a collateral uh, with Saul. A lot of similarities of Saul and Pharaoh. Because some might say, well, that was the evil spirit that was doing this in, in, um, in Saul's life. That's the consequence of that evil spirit. It, Saul wasn't really to blame for this. Well, let's go back to chapter 18. Where is that really coming from? The spirit was a judgment on the Lord, from the Lord. But it just confirmed what was going on in his heart the whole time. Chapter 18, verse 12. 
Now Saul was afraid of David. What was the reason? Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Verse 15, what does he say? When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, and he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came before them. Jealousy, fear, feeling threatened, intimidated, because David was a man of character. In verse 29, something similar, he says, Then Saul was even more afraid of David. The Saul was David's enemy continually. So it goes like this. In the same way that Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go from Egypt, so he hardened his heart himself. The Lord hardened and let him to go on his own way. You want to harden your heart? You want to continue to disobey? I'll just let you on your own way. That's the Lord's judgment to Saul. He left him to his own path of destruction. Before he came under the influence of the evil spirit, he blatantly disobeyed the Lord and displayed pride and jealousy. And furthermore, following the initial Saul's murders and deceptive actions are attributed to his fear, not to the evil spirit. Now, as we close here, Yahweh repeatedly protected his servant. And I want us to look closely to this. This is instructive to us as well. As we worked in our way through chapter 19, we read that the Lord provided and protected this servant of his in so many ways. He provided a way of escape. True, he may use human instruments such as Jonathan or Michael to provide such protection, but sometimes he bypasses them. And we would expect that Samuel would provide protection for, for David, but he didn't. He didn't do any protection. He wasn't able to provide protection even for himself. <clears throat> That's normally what we do. We try to find people that we go to before we go the, to the Lord. But yet, he protects us. <clears throat> Yahweh's regimen of protection should have proven instructive for David as well. So even in his momentary distress, David finds relief in seeing the assurance that the Lord is with him. My story that was etched in my mind was that poverty pressed um, in the people of North East Highlands of Scotland in the mid-19th century. It was then that a certain John Murray was praying for guidance. These folks were coming to America <clears throat> and they did not have what to eat. So Jim Mori was praying that the Lord would provide for him. And as he finished that prayer, just a salmon just jumped from the boat, from um, the ocean to the sidewalk where he was. We don't need signs that the Lord protects us. And I'm going to close here, um, but I want us to be reminded I'll give you this assignment. Psalm 59, David wrote in that context where he looked back and saw, God, you are my refuge. I can trust in you. Psalm 59. What does he say here? A mictan of David when Saul sent man and they washed the house in order to kill him. In the last verse he says, O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me his loving kindness. 
Amen. All right. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that you were with us. You do not let us in our troubles, that you protect us in so many ways. Bless our week. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to celebrate you. Amen.